You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast. What to teach your registrar about veterans' health. Our guest is Dr. Kerry Summerscales. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this recording is taking place and pay respect to their elders, past, present, and their families. So welcome everyone to this GPSA webinar on teaching your registrar about veterans' health. And Kerry and I were just chatting before we came on and just thinking, I guess, what a common and almost mainstream part of general practice it is. And yet so many aspects of what we do with our patients who are veterans is, you know, a little bit mired in mystery and sort of facets of practice, which I think many of us don't quite understand. And of course, for registrars, it's potentially very challenging. So I'm really pleased to have this webinar on tonight. I'd very much like to welcome Kerry, Kerry Summerscales, who has served 30 years in the Australian Army, been deployed multiple times and is currently transitioning out of defence and has the privilege of being able to help many of her fellow veterans as the local GP with about 50% of her patients as veterans. She works closely with advocates to assist veterans with their claims and their general health. She loves her practice and the blend of civilian and veteran patients she is able to support. And very impressively, in 2020, just late last year, she was awarded the RCGP Future Leaders President's Medal for Advocacy and GP Education of Veteran Health and DVA Literacy. So it is a great pleasure to introduce you, Kerry, and I'm very, very much looking forward to your session tonight. Thank you very much, Simon. I really appreciate it. So hi, my name's Kerry Summerscales. I'm living here in Mackay. Grew up in Adelaide and, yeah, at the ripe old age of 18, decided the army was the way to go. I've loved the time I've had in the army and I started off as a soldier, went through as a medic, then pathology, went through to sergeant and then took a commission in that because I got my degree part-time correspondence. I even did exams on overseas deployments. Now that's interesting. You get your exam interrupted by a recess. Excellent. <laughs> and yeah, but I did that knowing I wanted to do medicine. Many a time spent out at places like Coltana and Shawwater Bay. That's great, Kerry. Welcome aboard. I realised that many people don't understand about veterans' health. And many registrars, when I have them come in, they just don't seem to understand much about veterans' health or veterans' culture because there is a different culture to veterans and to defence life. And it is different and it's really hard to explain in some ways, but I'm going to attempt to try and do that and we'll go from there. What is a veteran? So everyone sort of sees that old gentleman, you know, World War II or Korean veteran humped over, but in his mind, he's still the strong infantier who's able to fight on all battles. If we don't think of him, we think of the gentleman with, you know, his medals and a big smile and he's an older gentleman, but you see him down the pub and everyone would be happy. The next ones that we might see would be the girl's own war stories. Don't assume just because when you see a veteran that the woman with him, an older veteran, don't assume that it's his wife. It may well be his wife, but don't assume that she didn't serve. She may well have done in the land army or she may have been a nurse or a multitude of things she could have done. Don't assume that she is a civilian wife. The next group that we don't think of is young gentlemen. Everyone thinks veterans are old. I've got veterans who are on gold cards who are 23 and 25, which is horrific when you think about it. If they're on a gold card, it means that their medical conditions are so severe. And if they're TPI, it means that you don't expect they're ever going to work again. And they're 23 and 25. So a lot of people don't consider that. And the last group we probably ever think of, and the ones who are most forgotten, is, yeah, the middle-aged woman. So I want to give you a slight bit of culture about the Defence Force. So we always sort of say ADF by the stars. Navy navigate by the stars and army sleep under them. And of course, the RAF determine their hotels by the stars. Now, one of the people I generally do this with is a RAFI and he always laughs at that and says that it's very true. And I actually married a British RAF and used to always say to me when I was going field, can't you tell them no? I'm like, what? The services have different roles, and, but we all work together. And I think it's really important to understand we do see each other as brother and sister. 
people talk about tribalism. In this case, I think it's not toxic tribalism. We will tease and pick on each other and you know, tease each other about our roles. But if anyone else dared did it, we'd have something to say. And every single one of my patients agrees with that. We always joke about, you know, the different services and one might come in from, you know, the RAF and they'll say, oh, you went the wrong colour. I go, yeah, I know. My knees tell me about that. So it's important for registrars to know that, yes, there are three services and yes, they will tease each other, but we're still one ADF. The ADF culture and veteran culture is quite unique. Can you imagine if you turn 17, 18, you go off to interstate, you leave your whole entire family and then you basically get stripped down and rebuilt. So they take you off to your basic training. Everything's rigid in that. And the whole Defence Force isn't like that all the time, otherwise people wouldn't stay. But in our training, it is. And it's extremely taxing. It's, yeah, it's just very hard. But in that, you build really good friendships. Now, if you think about all your friends, some of the ones you were closest with are some of the ones that you did your either medical school or your GP training with because you went through the same adversities and the same trialling times together. Multiply that by 10 and you've got what it's like to be within the defence because we're away from home. We haven't got our families. We're often posted away. You have to make new friendships every few years because you get posted every two years. And, you know, then you deploy overseas in harsh environments with each other. So you are relying on each other. And as much as people think I'm exaggerating when, you know, and my stepson used to always say, oh, yeah, right. It's very much the case of when we're overseas or, or even back here, we are really relying on each other. Because if you see the sniper that the other person didn't, then you're the one that has to yell out. Otherwise, that person's dead. I know it sounds, oh, that's a bit over the top, but that's the reality of it. So we do see each other as family and mates. And that's important for the registrars to know that those bonds are very strong, even if they haven't seen each other for years. Everyone sort of thinks of courage, but it's not just physical courage like a VC recipient. It can also be moral courage. And we see that a lot. Obviously, you see the lack of moral courage a bit more in the media than you do the ones where moral courage has been exposed and shown and demonstrated. And I think it's important for registrars to know that the defence isn't just what you see in the media. It certainly isn't just the four A's and how to avoid them, but that's a different topic. There's so much more to defence than that. And they're not just rigid. It's not a matter of following orders because the officer said so. The reason they can be rigid in some of their timings and such like, though, and give the registrar or yourselves a, a bit of a filthy look why you're late is because they're taught things such as, you know, if you're overseas, let's say Afghanistan, and you want to do a long patrol, so you, you're going to get resupplied along the way. There's only between, say, 12 and 12.10 is the only time that the airspace is free and it will be safe where the RAF can get there. You have to be in that grid square. You have to be in that particular place to receive your stores, which will be your food, water, and ammunition, not just for you, but for the guys that you're responsible for. And if you're not there, then guess what? You starve, you dehydrate, and you can't defend yourself. And as much as that also sounds like, oh, wow, really? That's a bit excessive. That's the reality of it. And even if it's not, that's how we're trained. So it's important for registrars to realize so that's when defense members are being you know, rigid and their communication is so blunt and forward. That's why. So it's, yeah, it's really important. The next thing I think that's really important for registrars to sort of have that insight on is transition from the ADF and that post-ADF veteran. I've been trying to think how I could explain this to people who don't experience it. But can you imagine, I mean, we've all done medical training and it took a fair bit of effort and a lot of time to get here, didn't it? So can you imagine you're at your place of work, which you love, you think the duck's guts, you're in the zone, you love what you're doing, and let's say you just slip on the floor. You have a fall. Next thing you know, you're trying to get back into work, but you can't and it's too painful and you end up having to leave, not just your workplace that you're in now, but medicine totally. 
So you've been told you have to leave medicine. You're not allowed to do this anymore. And then you also get told, by the way, you're not allowed to use the title doctor. That is what it would feel like when people get discharged from the Defence Force when they didn't want to leave. For some of you guys, you'll be in garrison towns, so where there's a lot of defence. And I think it's important for registrars to know some of the little things, such as the ADF family health card. So they get $400 each per member of their family, not for the defence member themselves because they're serving or their medical needs are taken care of, but for their family. And that's for out-of-pocket gaps and healthcare in general. And I think it's every financial year, so we do sort of suggest around May, have you guys used all of your health card extra funds? Maybe little Johnny needs orthodontics and you can share them as well. If you're in those towns as well, I'm sure your registrars will well be aware that if they're not, if they're coming into a town that has a high ADF population, just be aware that these people will deploy at a moment's notice. I know people through COVID assist who are on 24 hours notice to move to go into state. And then of course, when they come back, they've got to go in two weeks isolation and what have you. So for the families, it can be really quite disturbing as well and disruptive. So that's maybe why their kid is a little bit, you know, doesn't sit quietly or they get frustrated and such like. And for the families as well, they get posted with the member. So if you've got a spouse, maybe they're a nurse or they're a lawyer and they've got their job and they're doing really, really well and they're about to get promoted and you get posted. So they get a new job and they obviously you're not going to start at that same about to be promoted position. So they start a little bit down the ladder and they work their way up. They're about to get promoted again and you get posted. So ADF life does have a big impact on families. And I think it'd be cognizant for registrars to be aware of that and how that may impact the family, especially if there's additional medical needs such as speech or any of those other allied health for the kids. There's basically a few ways that we get out. You know, there's a voluntary transition. Yep, had enough. See ya. But even that, you're leaving a family, it is still distressing and involuntary that's either administrative, so I don't know, maybe they did drugs or their morals were not in keeping with the defence values, and medical. And that's the one you'll see a lot where there's a lot of issues is the medical. And this is where, once again, I sort of say that loss of purpose, that loss of identity, a role change, and sometimes shame of being medically discharged as we would if you were no longer allowed to use the title doctor. You talked about the media and some of the negative implications (laughs) that have happened. Yeah, I don't know that we've got time to go into it in detail, but I suspect that is pretty impactful on this population, your population. Brereton report, yeah, when the Brereton report came out, my veteran patient load almost doubled and with distress and angst, you know, many felt they were being tarred with the same brush of a few. And that's it. I think it's so important to realise it's the same with GPs, really. You only hear about the GP who did the, oh, he missed or she missed this really important diagnosis. Bad GP. All GPs are bad. Well, it's the same with defence. You know, you don't hear of the brilliant things that they do. You just hear about the minority, one or two, who have done things that are not acceptable or atrocious. Are there supports for the families? There are. Yeah, look, that's really important. That's a good point. There's Defence Community Organisation. And in any major defence area, they will have those. And there's family centres as well. So certainly in Townsville, you've got what used to be the Gecko Centre, and now they're opening their Oasis, which will be for veterans and their families. So there are some supports, and there are some schools in those sort of major defence towns have defence liaison supports. But it's still difficult for those kids. Yeah, I suspect there's probably some kind of child of defence parent syndrome of, you know, maybe well, there is, you move know, around got, a lot. And yeah, they call them army brats, RAF brats or Navy brats. But, and it's because you do move around so often. And, I mean, many people have friendships that they've had since, you know, year one and they've had the same friendship groups, whereas that doesn't happen if they're, you're a kid of a defence member. So there are some common veteran issues that we see. I think it's most important to know that most veterans have transitioned effectively. 
not every veteran has PTSD. If they're army, ask them about their knees and their backs. But I think that's a really important message to get to the registrars that as much as the media sort of has us portrayed as we're all sitting rocking in the corner, that's not the case. Mostly it's going to be musculoskeletal hearing and the tinnitus that ringing, always ask them about that. More recently, although I suppose there was around in Vietnam, but I was but a mere child, so I don't know. There has certainly been increases in drug use and alcohol abuse in the veteran community. I suppose that's in keeping with some of the mental health and that adjustment. It's important to pass the message on to your registrars that there are traumatic brain injuries and they can be anything from simple blast or, you know, um, especially if they've done things like Afghan, where there was a lot of IEDs, so improvised explosive devices. And there was some studies where they got some of the SF Special Forces guys to wear these vests that would record if there was a blast or if there was any sort of, you know, concussive wave. The problem, of course, is that it's let off a beep and flash when it did. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've got on a two-way range where I'm seeking someone else and they're seeking me, I don't want to be flashing and beeping away. So, yeah, they often didn't wear it. Always ask veterans about had they had concussion you know, from sports because very much like you would with a football player, how many times you get knocked out? Oh, you know, did you get that cup play again? Of course it did, especially if they're slightly older, but also definitely if they've had any explosive contacts overseas. Occupational hazardous exposures, so with that like RAF with their, you know, the aviation fuel, the guys you would have heard about, the F-111s who are cleaning out the tanks, those of us overseas, and overseas doesn't just mean Afghanistan. I never went to the stand, but certainly Bougainville, East Timor, Solomon Islands, places people don't even know about most of the time. There was a lot of discarded chemicals and they're now finding out things to do with that. So yeah, sort of ask your veterans about that and how do you sort of expose your registrars to that? Whenever you're doing occupational medicine, whenever you're doing anything to do with a specific group, just add, don't forget veterans. I think people forget veterans can be, they're still normal human beings and they have normal desires, so they'll have relationships and sexual health issues. A lot of gentlemen do have erectile dysfunction. So when you're talking about sexual health, when you're doing that topic with your registrars, maybe also bring up about, look, ask veterans if they've got erectile dysfunction. Maybe don't go, hi, my name's Kerry, if you've got erectile dysfunction, but certainly bring it up in the topic. And women as well, ask about um, urinary incontinence. The way you can really get it across to your registrars, if, so for me, now before I put on weight, I was 58 kilos, so 58, 60 kilos, and I would carry on my person would be my plate, so the body armour and that was 25 kilos plus my 5 kilo weapon. Then I would have to go do a 5K walk, and walk is one word for it. Then we would have to do firearm movement with all of this on, and then I have to lift a 25 kilo box and put it up to a 1.5 metre plate, which is all good and well, except for the fact that I'm 1.53. And then you go carry 22 kilos jerry cans in each hand, and you go up and down about six times. So when I'm doing that, I'm carrying more than I weigh. That should explain some of the musculoskeletal injuries. And it should also explain for some of the women why they have incontinence issues. And especially given that when so a woman will have a baby, when she comes back, however much maternity leave she has, So if it's three months, six months, doesn't matter. When she gets back, she's got three months from returning from maternity leave to get back to be fully deployable or whatever her status was before. Obviously, you can imagine lifting some of those weights if you've just given birth six months or three, six months ago, can leave that pelvic floor not in the best shape. Maybe mention to your registrars to ask veterans about what anti-malarials they're on. I won't go into great detail about that because it is slightly controversial and it is in the health assessment I suppose the important message to get to your registrars is that it's the veterans under 30 who have transitioned for medical or administrative reasons, so they didn't want to get out, who are at the highest risk of self-harm. What's the challenges of doing veterans' health? 
them and veterans, veterans themselves, their lack of knowledge about Medicare. I joined at 18. How many 16, 17-year-olds do you know that go around going, hey, mum, sling us the uh, Medicare card, would you? I've just got to go down the doctor. Mum always, well, dad dealt with that, didn't they? So then you join the army and then you're told when to eat, when to get up, when to go to bed, when you're allowed to go to the toilet, where you have to be. Obviously, it's not like that the entire time, but certainly those first few months of training, that's what it's like. So they've got no idea about Medicare. I will turn 50 this year. I got my first Medicare card last year. So yeah, before that. And if it were not for the fact that I'd studied medicine, I'd have no idea about Medicare either. The other thing is they may not know anything about DVA, especially if they're slightly older. And the ones getting out now have a bit more knowledge. But before that, we had no idea about DVA. And before that, it was always considered, oh, don't go near them. They'll just do you over. So be aware some may have that attitude. They're also very much like, I'll be right till I'm not. And that's often the case. And I suppose we see that in medicine as well. The communication will be very blunt because you don't have time to say, oh, look, you know, like I know that you're in a bit of a conserved position at the moment and I know you're a bit compromised, but yeah, there's a sniper over there. Communication and that would be duck. So that's why they do have blunt communication. And many of the older ones are travelling Woolbury's, so you may have a lot of that, you know, they'll be transient, they'll only be there for a little while and then be off. I suppose one of the roles as GPs and certainly for your registrars is to try to demystify some of the DBA basics for that your veterans access some of those non-GP specialist services. Obviously, like most of us, regional and remote is problematic as well. Is there a sensitivity asking a veteran about their past experience? No, please ask. Yeah. The only question I wouldn't ask is, did you kill anyone? I'm actually really pleased, you know, that you've given us some parameters because it's a bit yeah. like that thing of people have come out of prison and, you know, you've got a bit of a sense of why we are there. And it's a yeah. bit the same. This is curiosity about where What's did up? you serve? What did you awesome. do? Yeah. So that's really good, I think, and maybe letting registrars know that is yeah. very reasonable. And, actually and if, especially if you look like you want to learn, ask. Yeah. Ask. There's a question around are there issues of trust of civilian supports and healthcare yeah. providers? Uh, once veterans transition to civilian life? They tend to be fairly initially not trusting. So you will have to build trust the same as you would with anyone, but it might be a little bit harder, yeah. So the way to build trust would be to ask those questions. Ask, what does Anzac Day mean to you? I mean, I know what it means to me, but to some, they don't like it. You know, the song, the band play Wilson Matilda, you know, why are they marching? And I ask myself the same question. So some people don't like it. Just ask them, that will build trust. And there's a question which I think everybody or certainly most registrars want to know about, but I think you're about to cover, and that's really some of these basics around what do the cards mean, what's <laughs> covered, how yeah. do you do, what's the care plan. And I guess, you know, you've talked about a lot of opportunistic history-taking identification of likely issues and how yeah. do registrars do that? In what format? Is it part of a particular assessment? Should they be doing this when they see their patients opportunistically? So keen to hear about that, Kerry. I think DVA is the bane of many existence, but it can really work for you if you want it to. And I know a lot of people don't like seeing veterans who they go, oh, DVA doesn't pay, but this stuff is to show you how it can be effective. And I think that's important to teach your registrars that it isn't just bulk billing, it can be effective. Always ask your veteran, have they got an advocate? And what card do they have? So yeah, the cards, some of you may still see an orange card, but very, very rarely. That's realistically for pharmaceuticals only and it's Commonwealth Allied Services from World War II, so we tend not to see it. The other one is white card. Now, white card is when initially it'll be for non-liability health and everyone is getting that as they discharge now. Others will have to apply for it still. So if they've been out longer than a year or two, they will have to apply for it. Just ask them, have they done that? The white card, that's when you get specific conditions. So that would be when you've put in a claim, which will go through 
And we've said, yeah, defence is at fault. And they've accepted liability for that. So they may get a payout or they may not, but they will get medical support for that. So when you see someone with a white card, it's not written on the card. They have to log into MyGov and see what's on there. But they should also tell you. Gold card. Gold card is covering all things medical that have a Medicare billing number. With that as well, it's important when you see someone for their accepted condition, you generally bill DVA, which is a bulk bill per se, but it's 110% of the bulk billing fee plus the veteran incentive payment. So I know if you're in a private billing practice, then it's like, oh, really? But it's still better than bulk bill. And also with a veteran comes their family and they often get great appreciation and things like that. So it's, although they're financially in one consult will be a little bit less, overall is quite adequate. And gold, everything gets built to DBA, obviously. With that, in case I forget to mention it, if you're doing excisions, so I understand, you know, like most of us bill a dressing pack as well, tell your registrars that if they can write a script for a dressing pack and it comes in packs of 10, so you get 10 dressing packs, you know, your trays, and you just get authority from DBA and you give them the script, they come back with 10 packs and there you go. You don't have to worry about that. Now, so you've got a veteran, you say, have they got a white card? The next thing is, have you done your post-discharge health assessment? This one is, you know, DBA think you should bill a normal 707. So we're talking a decent billing there. Now, if they discharge before the 30th of June, 2019, they'll get a one-off. But those of us who discharge after that, we get one a year for five years. And I think that's, we all understand because things evolve. We'll go through this in a little bit more detail, but out of that may come things, they've got injuries, maybe they've got a knee injury or they've got back and they haven't put any claims into DBA. So if you get nothing else from this, just show your registrars, type into Google RMA SOPs and the list of everything is there and the wording that you must use. So that's one of the most important things that you can teach your registrars. After you put in a claim, because it's taking so long, DVA has come up with this provisional access to medical treatment. So you basically get, there's 20 most common conditions, which I'll show you in a minute, and it's as though they've been accepted. So they get treated as though they've been accepted. So they're back on the white card. So for the veteran, there's no fee. And that's for us, for allied health, even if I send them to a surgeon and you know, they have surgery on that. And even if it comes back at the end of the 18 months for it to be accepted or declined, because it is taking up to that in some places, they won't have to pay back any of that money if it did get declined. So there's three acts and I won't go into it. But those who are under the old VEA, so Veterans Entitlement Act, so they would be the ones who were around before the mid-90s. If they got out before that, they probably don't have access to that. So you come back with the PMMT and it says, yeah, we've accepted their lumbar spondylosis. And you decide you want to send them to physio and exercise physiologist. There's a DVA cycle of care. And it is back online again now, the form. It's a new form that DVA has devised. And it's actually quite good, to be honest. And so they get 12 visits per cycle but the allied health professional has to write back to you and you have to see the veteran again to make sure that they're actually getting benefit from it. Because a lot of them will go, oh, I don't see why I have to come back. Just let your registrars know. I mean, the argument I use is, well, if you had a leaky tap and the plumber came around three times a week for six months and it was still broken, wouldn't you get a new plumber? In that, I'm sort of referring more to some of the business models of some of the exercise physiology providers and they generally sort of get that. We've put in claims, we've got the PAMT so that they're, and they're off doing their physio and exercise physiologist. Eventually, DVA will say, oh, yeah, look, we need to investigate this further. And they'll come in for a medical impairment assessment. And that's that big water paper that everyone cringes at. This is the one that's actually worth the money. So let your registrars know, don't be scared by it and just follow the bouncing ball. From that, there may also be ability to work, which is a medical certificate. And if they are unable to work and they've seen their advocate and they've got incapacity payments from DVA, 
They can also get rehab services. So it's like IPAR or Connect and all that. And they can get access to retraining and such. Like I know people who've got medical degrees, law degrees, all that through those sort of services. Other than that, the care and referrals are just like anyone else. But just be aware of coordinated veterans care. It is like a care plan for a veteran who's at risk of being hospitalised and they're on a gold card. And that one pays well. In most of the clinical practices or the software now, there is a veterans health assessment. So the ones who are entitled, as long as they're not serving anymore, so they can't be in the reserves still. And the purpose is ultimately to collate all of their history and all those sort of things I said before about mild traumatic brain injuries, their sexual health, their physical health, their preventative medicine, it's all in there. If your practice doesn't have it, then if you go to the DBA website, it's there. As I said before, it's either a one-off if you transitioned before June 30, 2019, or for people like myself, it's one every year for five years. The billing is as per any health assessment. DVA expects that you will do a 707, so utilise it. Use that time to talk to them, and for your registrars, great. They shouldn't be seeing, you know, four, five, six people an hour anyway, so utilise them. Get them to use that as an opportunity to really get to know their veteran and their issues that may be presenting to them. So it's a 707 plus your veteran incentive payment. If it is those of us who are after 2019, it's an MT 707 just for the billing. Gary, can I just ask, so a veteran transitions from the service. Yep. Who's the recipient of these health assessments? I honestly think in 20 years of practice, I don't think I've ever done one. Are they seeking out this assessment at the... No, what, you know, see what I would do. You know how when you get a new patient and in most of our programs, it says, have you ever served in the Defence Force? Yep. Certainly in best practice, it will automatically populate at the top. Have you considered a post-ADF health assessment? Okay. So seek it out. It's great to find more about your veteran, but also it's a good money earner. Seek it out. Mm. So essentially they're exiting the service where they've been accessing care and they'll bowl up to a general practice for something and this can be their first sort of comprehensive assessment in in civilian life. Definitely. I I sort of see it as, yeah, do it as a brilliant transition of care to you. Yep. And that's what it's for. I won't go through all of this because it is all in the programs but I, and also online if you go to the DBA website. But I want you to know, ask all those things that we said before. Do ask what sort of transition type they had and any injuries or illnesses whilst in service. Most of us didn't go to the RAPs or the doctor or the sick bay or the medic because you're always terrified, oh, what if they downgrade me medically? What if they kick me out? What if it means I can't deploy? What if it means you know I can't do the other thing that is really good? This is one of the bad things about defence culture. And there used to be certainly an attitude of what we used to call, if you had injuries a lot, you were called a linger. And linger is short for malingerer. It's clearly not something you want to be known as. So that's why a lot of them didn't go whilst they were serving. And they'll come to you and say, yeah, my back's killing me. My knees are awful. You know, and yeah, my head. Well, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not. Ask about their at-risk behaviours. I generally, you know, sexual health, illicit drugs, certainly in certain circles, steroid use was huge. So it is something to ask about. And there are in it as well, there will be the tools. You've got the PTSD tool, the K10 and the audit. Just ask them really bluntly and, you know, but obviously with a bit of tact. But yeah, they'll tell you. And yeah, obviously do a physical exam. I get them to do a really basic gals. So, you know, like squat and try and waddle, but I tell them, please stop if it hurts because that's when you'll find out. And, you know, obviously do a really quick one on the shoulders. Can they put their arms above their head? And you'll generally see by looking at their face because they're also very, no, I'm right, I'll be able to do it. But yeah, you'll see on their face. This, I suppose, is really important. And I think if you can get your registrars to understand this, you will have the veterans on side. 
So out of that health assessment, let's say that you found that they had sore knees and a sore lumbar spine. So you do need to do imaging. DVA does insist on proof on a lot of things. And if they've come from an advocate, they may come in with a list of, can you discuss this with your doctor? Or some of them will have already filled these forms out. The front bit they do, not us. The bit that's important is the basis for diagnosis. And you use the wording from the RMA SOPs that I mentioned before. So an example would be, I know this off the top of my head now, osteoporosis. To say they've got a sore left knee and I did imaging and it showed that there was osteophytes and chondral loss or, you know, compartment space narrowing. I would say the veteran presents with longstanding left knee pain and stiffness with some loss of function by decreased range of movement. And that ticks the first parts of the SOPs. And I would say imaging demonstrates there's osteophyte formation on the medial compartment and there's chondral loss via medial compartment narrowing. So therefore, you've demonstrated the other things that's required. That means it'll go straight through. They can't deny it. When you do this, it's a normal MBS consult until that condition's been accepted under the PAMT or been accepted fully onto their white card or gold card, in which case this would all be billed to DBA. Some of them may come in with this slightly simpler form and on the back of it, it's got a list of common conditions and what's required. So you've got the essential things. It's exact same. Still use the RMA SOPs. Basically, all psychiatry ones need to be diagnosed by a psychiatrist and sleep apnea needs to be sleep physician consult. One of the supervisors obviously has some experience and has talked about the importance of being a medical legal advocate for helping veterans get a gold card and also understanding the terminology and how important it is to support the veterans' applications through. Most definitely. And that's why I say use those words that are in the RMA SOP. And you don't need to be all fangdangled. Just say they've got pain and stiffness. Just say, yeah, saw an osteophyte. That's all. Tick, 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 done. Yeah, obviously don't lie, but certainly encourage the veterans to tell you what is actually going on and be truthful. And that is even more so in the medical impairment assessment. With the provisional access to medical treatment, it is meant to expire June this year. So they've said that they're going to extend that. We don't need to go through all of the 20 conditions. 16 of them are physical. The other four are tinnitus, hearing loss, solar keratosis, And there's another one. It'll come up. So yeah, don't stress about that. A lot of your veterans won't know about it. So it's important that you know about it. But ultimately, once they've submitted a claim, this treatment confirmation form should come back within a few weeks. They can actually apply for it if their advocate suggests it as well for old things. What I always do is it'll have across the top the conditions that you've submitted. So just tick the appropriate ones. So don't tick all 20. Tick the appropriate ones, sign it. I scan it into their file because DBA might be good at losing things sometimes and get sent off to the primary claims and their advocate and the veteran keeps an original. And then they can go to their allied health provider and say, yes, this is accepted under my white card at this point in time provisionally so I can seek treatment. When you fill that out as well, once again, let your registrars know they can bill for that. It's their time. But now we would probably bill DDA because we've just been told that they've got this under the provisional access to medical treatment. So therefore, that's what we would do. So when I first joined and probably up till about 10 years ago, and even now, one of the things people don't realize a lot of the time, you cannot wear sunglasses on parade. So you may be on a parade at 11 o'clock or one o'clock for two hours if it's a really formal parade. And you're not allowed to wear sunglasses. The RSM would have a hissy fit. So you just can't wear that. Also, it used to be that we, and a lot of them, we've gone back to it, wear berets, so they're not protecting anything with that slouch hat. And certainly the RAF headwear and Navy headwear, especially Navy, it's just totally sitting on their head, doesn't protect it. So yeah, skin cancers and solar keratosis are almost a given. The medical impairment assessment, so that's that big water paper. The most important thing to let your registrars know is don't be scared of it. 
and understand that it's not necessarily how we would think of it. I basically look at it as, say, it's osteoarthritis. Are they suddenly going to grow back chondral tissue? No, and I guess it's permanent. Is it stable? Are they in the active phase of it? It's just, you know, they've just had an amputation. No, then they're probably stable. Tell your veteran to respond as if it's their worst day. You want to know their crappiest, most terrible day. Tell them to respond as though they've never served. They'll know what that means, which is, you know, they don't just go, well, you said, you said to squat, so I did. And tell them to stop when it hurts. I've done that so often. I go, okay, squat, and I get all the way down. I go, are you in pain? They go, yeah, well, stop. Show me where it starts to hurt. The most important thing is when you're filling this out, be detailed. And all of them, it'll say, you know, like how much of a joint movement can they have? A quarter, a half, three quarters full. But also just comment on the physical, emotional, and intimate. And you don't have to go into great details. You know, they can no longer hang from a chandelier. But certainly I often say pain in their knees and back does impact their intimate marital life. And this has a further emotional impact on them and their family. The billing is good. But if you're doing it over multiple consults, you build the first consult as per DBA billing, but the time-based. And if it took five consults, you bill each one. And then it's not till the last one that you have this billing. So if it's a massive wad of paper, each one of those pieces of paper is $16.17. If you print off five x-ray reports, that's another $16.17 per page. The consult that it took you, so if it took a 40 minutes, $116.11. Now with the reports, you can do one if you want. The brief one, I often just print off a patient health summary. That's 33 bucks. So you can see it's actually worth it. This is the cycle of care. I think it's important for the registrars to know that they can refer for 12 visits. You can either get it from DBA or it's in our programs again. Billing it, yep. So it's a normal sort of consult fee plus the veteran incentive payment. But when they write it, make sure that the allied health provider knows they've got to write back to them. Also in it, please note what conditions being treated and use the RMA term. So don't write back pain, write lumbar spondylosis. Now, probably the last thing I want to tell you about is pharmacy and the Veterans Pharmacy Assistant Centre. Tell your registrars to shove that phone number in their phone. I use it all the time. If it's for accepted conditions, they can get all the medication at $6.60, but you've got to tick that RPBS on your prescription. The other thing with it is, so I've got Brintelix for a patient. The first time you ring up, you get authority for three months. They want a K10 or something like that first up, and then you've got to show that it's improved three months later, and then they'll give you six months authority. I've started using PEA or P compound. You just write a quick letter. They'll send you out the performer and melatonin, those sorts of things. There's a little performer. But these guys are very knowledgeable. They have recently changed, so they're pharmacy assistants, but most of them can get the information. And this is where you also get authority for, say, a opsite or, you know, island dressing or for those dressing trays. So I used to always think, oh, God, I'm doing excisions on veterans, you know, gold card or white cards who have got skin things accepted. I can't bill the $15 for the dressing tray. Well, yeah, now I've realized, well, it doesn't matter. I just get one of the veterans, I get a script and they come in 10 of them. So my next 10 excisions on a veterans covered. Now, there you go. (laughs) That's DBA 101 really quickly. You've been talking about the importance of your training and being in the right place at the right time and picking up your supplies. And you've done that to a T tonight. Well done. Kerry, thanks so much. And you obviously are a wonderful advocate for your veteran colleagues. (laughs) And um, I certainly have learned a lot and I'm sure others too. So thanks so much. Thank you. All the very best. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you hadn't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. 
If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.